So good afternoon. Stan Scarborough here with uh, Data Center Hawk. I'm here with uh, Giuliano and Andy from Digital Realty and Interaction, and we're talking about data centers. Focus on cloud, location, data center industry, trends, dynamic market. So guys, thank you very much for joining me today, and uh, very excited to have you both here. Um, it would be, I think, great if you could just introduce uh, yourself, your roles in the company individually. Everyone on, that's listening will know about interaction and digital and what's been going on with you guys. But it'd be great if you two could just introduce yourselves quickly before we start getting into the nitty gritty. Sure. Thank you, Dan. Really pleased uh, to join you here today for Data Center Hawk. Uh, I'm Andy Power. I'm the global CFO of Digital Realty based out of San Francisco. Uh, been with the company five and a half years uh, and uh, have a, my, have some typical CFO roles and some incremental roles on top of that here at Digital. And uh, really excited to be talking about uh, our EMEA and Global Footprint with you, uh, along with Giuliano. Yes, uh, Dan, thanks for having us today. Uh, my name is Giuliano De Antonio. Uh, I used to be the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Interaction prior to, to the acquisition. And of course, I've been working with Andy and the team over the past few months to integrate the companies. Uh, now, in Europe, we, we brand the company Interaction, a digital realty company. Uh, so just to indicate we're really coming together as, as, as one entity. And uh, so I'll continue to be uh, in a role being part of the, of the global family uh, at Digital Realty. Yeah, it's really excited to have you both on the call today. Um, Andy, maybe if we could start with you. You know, it's, it can't be a small feat bringing two companies together of the size of, of you guys. Could you just maybe talk us through the process of bringing two very large companies together and, and kind of, and how that's working? Yeah, Dan, I mean, uh, I think this was a pretty uh, incredible combination we, we sought out from the beginning here. Uh, and we certainly didn't envision doing this in a, uh, under the guise of a global pandemic uh, that really shut down the face-to-face -face, uh, travel. Uh, but uh, I think despite uh, those headwinds, we made great progress uh, in 2020, and I think that progress will accelerate in 2021. Uh, I think it all goes back to the strategy at the outset from a digital realty standpoint, being the leading global provider dedicated to the full customer spectrum for those enterprise colo customers to the multiple megawatt dedicated hyperscalers. Uh, so we've um, we spent a fair bit of time uh, approaching this process to make sure there's a one plus one equals far greater than two combination. Uh, uh, really from the digital standpoint, uh, listening and learning uh, and seeing what we could incorporate uh, into the combined company. You see that in the way we brand our business across EMEA as interaction, a digital realty company. Uh, you see that from a combined leadership team we set out uh, with David Ruberg at the helm of that business for uh, digital EMEA uh, now for the last 12 plus months. Uh, and uh, we've done a lot of work to integrate uh, not just our back of the house IT systems operational approach, uh, but from a holistic how we approach our customers, who we are targeting, uh, where we are supporting them across the European continent and around the globe. Uh, and we've made great progress, which I think you've seen in our uh, handful of quarters now as a combined company. Uh, a few records when it comes to new logos and additions to our 4,000 plus customer base, uh, records in terms of our new signings velocity fantastic contributions across the product segments, as well as the regions. Uh, and I would say we're not done yet. 
uh, in terms of the integration, and we're not done yet in terms of the, the execution successes. I think we're going to put together uh, uh, as a combined entity. No, it's really exciting. It is really, really exciting. So my one of my main main roles with with um, Data Center Hawk is the European market and expanding out into Asia. So, Giuliano, I'm interested to see what the strategy is for the EMEA region uh, following the merger. Yes, so uh, we, as, as Andy mentioned, we're right, really trying to combine the best of both worlds. So the, the legacy interaction organization had a strategy very much rooted into uh, the markets, the individual markets. We, we have teams that operate uh, uh, on the ground in each of the uh, locations where, where, where we, we have a business. And at the same time, we really look at uh, all the uh, main customer segments that, that we target. And so the, the strategy for, for the legacy interaction organization was really a combination of these two things. But what we heard more and more from customers was the fact that they wanted uh, to be part of a global platform. And that's where that's what digital uh, brings to the table, that global platform. We refer to it as, as platform digital that enables our customers to have a, a single partner that can serve them uh, across the globe. So we have, we're combining the, the really deep know-how in the countries that comes from legacy interaction with the global platform, that, uh, the platform digital that uh, the, the mother company is bringing it to the mix. And the combination of these two is, is providing a very, very unique differentiation uh, in serving our customers globally and, and within EMEA. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really exciting to see the two businesses come together. And I'm sure there's been a, um, a kind of combination of the cultures to develop a, a kind of combined culture between the two organizations. Uh, one of my kind of questions that I, we've been looking at for the last year or so is we, we, we've been covering the flat markets, the Frankfurt, London, Amsterdam, Paris, and Dublin, uh, but we've also been looking at the, the other locations. I wanted to kind of work, get, get your view, given the fact that you're operating in, you know, tier one, tier two, and tier three markets. How are you seeing the demand requirements vary between these tier one and tier two markets in Europe? And, and where are you seeing kind of the, the really kind of largest increase in capacity demand? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with that and then maybe Andy can chime in. Uh, so uh, we see very much a pattern of, of, of demand rolling out across the globe and typically starts in the U.S. So the things that happen in the U.S. tend to cascade onto Europe uh, 18 to 24 months later, start initially in the U.K. and the other flat market, and then they cascade to the, to the tier two and tier three market. So that's been very much the case for all the main patterns of demand. And what's dominated the, the European market over the last uh, half a decade has been the, the demand from the hyperscalers. These global platforms that are coming to Europe, they want to deploy in multiple locations. And typically they start in the flat market. So we've seen that demand in Frankfurt, in Amsterdam, in London, in Paris, and Dublin uh, since the, the 2013, 2014. And now that they've established their presence in Europe, they want to get closer to the end users. They want to get closer to the end users for a couple of reasons for uh, uh, data uh, sovereignty reasons, because they want to, there's, there's regulation that require the data to be uh, in country, but also because uh, uh, customer experience is becoming more and more important, especially when you start thinking of applications like cloud, like digital media, where you really want to be as close as possible to the end users. And so they are deploying more and more in, in, in for now in tier two cities like Madrid, Zurich, Stockholm, uh, Vienna, uh, those are the, the cities where we're seeing uh, the, the, the uptake in demand now. 
and they're starting to work with us to go even beyond that into tier three cities. So it's like a, a cascade of demand getting closer and closer to the end users, following the GDP, uh, again, deploying, uh, deploying with much more, uh, much more granularly than they originally did when they, when they landed in Europe. That's really interesting. I mean, Andy, maybe you can help with this question. You know, when you think about the demand or the growth that you've got from uh, capacity in Europe compared to the US market, where is that at? And US, Asia, Europe, you know, what, what, just in percentage terms, you know, is it, are you seeing Europe accelerating significantly or could you give us a bit of an insight into that from a kind of a, an absorption perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, um, the evolution of our industry, the maturation of our demand is certainly playing out in the geographical format. And you're seeing the North America markets still growing, uh, but being the slowest of the growing parts of, of the globe, quite honestly, uh, in the called single low, lower single digits type growth relative to a very large installed base. And as you move to a uh, Europe or EMEA and to other parts of the, of the world, uh, on the back of that, be it Latin America or Asia Pacific, you're adding hundreds of basis points of growth relative to the install base. I think there's two phenomenons you're seeing play out here. Is, um, one, uh, many of the larger customers, the web scale or hyperscale customers are U.S. multinationals, and they've certainly anchored their infrastructure bases uh, on their home soil uh, and now are looking to push into incremental parts of the world over time and rolling out new services. Uh, and then you also have the, the, the phenomenon, which is uh, uh, you touched on with Juliana's question is uh, uh, and one, uh, one uh, side of the table that the, our opportunity, the workloads, the data is boundaryless. Uh, we're consuming it in so many shapes and forms in so many places. Uh, on another lens, it is with boundaries and those boundaries are set up by geopolitical divisions, country borders, as we speak to data sovereignty, and we speak to the physical location and necessity of that data sitting at closer proximity to the end users, depending on the use case or, or application. So I think that trend uh, is also an accelerant of demand when you speak outside the US and you see that in our actions at Digital Realty and Interaction, where we're expanding into that second or third city in some of the European cities, countries, and we're speak, st uh, growing into uh, numerous uh, other parts of, of Europe, uh, including our most recent entrance into Croatia and Greece. Uh, and you see that on a global lens at digital. We're now across, uh, we're quickly approaching 25 countries in almost 50 metropolitan areas around the globe, across six continents. So uh, we're kind of uh, following the sun a little bit to support our customers uh, with their footprints based on their demand needs. Yeah, it's crazy. That growth number is just is just uh, astronomical. I mean, one of the things that I've seen that I'd be interested in both of your comments on is that it strikes me that um, the especially and this is again from a European perspective that the competition seems to be heating up up in Europe, and there seems to be an influx of you know new and also established so new European operators and then established US operators coming into Europe. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, is there still room for these new operators? How does this capacity, you know, how long is this curve gonna go? And, you know, do you, do you find it, do you feel like you're competing in Europe or, or, or what, what's your take on the, 
the competitive landscape with both kind of US operators coming to Europe and and kind of these newer operators that that seem to be raising uh, a few billion to go after the data center market. Yeah, so let me let me, let me start with uh, uh, trying to quantify that headroom that you refer to. Is is there still room for growth? Uh, I want to give you a couple of figures on on the macro macroeconomic figures. So if you look at GDP, uh, actually Europe has a higher GDP than the US. It's roughly 125% of the of the US GDP. But when it comes to tax spend, uh, it's only 75% of the of the tax spend in the US. So there's clearly a, uh, what I call a tech divide, a tech gap uh, between the two continents. And part of that is related to the fact that in the US technologies are adopted much earlier uh, than in Europe. But generally speaking, there's a lower level of investment uh, in technology in Europe compared to the US. When it comes to data center, Europe is even further behind in the sense that there's less than 50% of the, of the data center spend in Europe compared to the US. So you have 75% uh, in terms of tech spend and less than 50% in data center spend. That indicates that there is still a lot of room for growth in Europe, relatively speaking, uh, to the US. And that's why you're seeing that double digit growth uh, in the European market, while the US are still growing, and as Andy pointed out, but it's still in single digit. So that is the, the driver for all these players, especially the North American players, to look at Europe as, a, as the, the, the next frontier for growth. And if you take the same uh, analysis a little bit further, and you start looking at, at that ratio between GDP and, and, and data center spend in some of the emerging geographies, including Eastern Europe, Middle East, Asia, that gap is even, is even wider. So you can expect that you know, we will see that, 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 that focus that is now in Europe migrate over time to some of the, of, of the, of the geographies where that divide is, is even bigger. So the, head, the headroom is clearly there. Uh, and we expect that in Europe, we continue to see very healthy growth for uh, um, at, at, least, uh, at least the next uh, half decade and, and beyond. And then, of course, there will be new areas, uh, uh, new, new parts of the world where we see the same phenomenon. So that's driving the interest for, for, for Europe from, uh, from, from these players. So there is room for a lot, for, for, there is room for more players, but we are in a very, very strong competitive position in Europe. Uh, yeah. we, we really capture uh, a significant portion of, of, of the new demand. Uh, we are growing in a very, very healthy fashion. Uh, the fact that we are a global platform provides a differentiation, but also in Europe specifically, because we have the heritage interaction really rooted into the, the highly connected campuses, the, these, these hubs, connectivity hubs that we have. So the combination of these connectivity hubs and, uh, and, and the global platform put us in a position where uh, you know, some of the new entrants, uh, frankly, have, have, have less, less weapons to compete against us and, uh, and so we are in a very strong competitive position. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, I understand if you can't say, um, and, you know, but what, what would you say in terms of the amount of capacity that you're, for want of a better description, hoovering up, like percentage of capacity across the markets? You know, would you, how would you, would you put that? Have you done any analysis around that? And is that something that you can, you can talk about? I'll take this within Europe. I don't know if Andy can provide a broad, broader perspective globally. So within Europe, in absolute terms, we are continuing to, to put more, to deploy more capital into the big markets. Because if you look at the absolute terms, uh, uh, double-digit growth in a market like Frankfurt and, and, and Paris and London is uh, more significant than a, a 50% growth in some of the tier two or tier three markets. So in, re- in, in absolute terms, we are putting more, more capital into, into the big, the, the, the flat markets. Uh, but 
we are seeing much faster growth in, into the into the tier three markets. So we are increasing the proportion of capital that we put in those markets vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the, the big ones. And I don't know, Andy, if you want to comment more, more generally. What's your take, Andy, on that? Yeah, I mean, we are at Globally Digital, we're spending in excess of $2.5 billion a year on new capacity. A disproportionate amount of that uh, investment is going outside the U.S., especially relative to our, our, our current existing footprint, uh, which is more North America dominant, probably called 65% of our, our the pie chart is North America. Um, and that's just going, we're, we're, we're investing for a longer one way in growth in these higher growth markets. Uh, kind of going back to your prior question for half a second. I mean, uh, personally, having seen this industry from inside the company for the last almost six years and from outside the company, for 10 years prior to that, um, I think you're seeing a maturation of the demand, not just in size, but also in complexion. Uh, more and more of our customers are looking for platform digital to solve their pain points on a global stage uh, and, and to kind of align with trusted infrastructure partners that will stand the test of time. And uh, if you look at the European uh, competitive dynamics you're asking about, well, should we be worried about the next competitor? I think we don't take anyone, uh, any competitor lightly, uh, but I think the, the, in the competitive advantage, the combination of the legacy interaction of legacy digital European teams have together uh, is, is quite significant. Uh, it was kind of two puzzle pieces, digital from a UK and Ireland's perspective, the interaction from a continental Europe perspective, uh, interaction from a um, most highly connected destination standpoint, digital from a larger scale footprint deployment standpoint. Um, and I don't think it's, it should be lost that doing business in Europe and digital has been doing business in Europe for close to 15 years is a lot different, more complex and not without challenges that you do not see in the United States. Uh, the boots on the ground, local leadership, knowing the, the, the languages uh, has a real difference. Uh, I can just go back to uh, these COVID-19 times. Uh, if we didn't have some of the managing directors that run our various countries being able to work as business leaders with their communities to allow our critical engineers and staffing to keep our data centers up and running, that would have impacted our customers. Um, so uh, just importing uh, capital into the country uh, does not replicate the installed base of infrastructure, uh, leadership, and talent we already have. And I think digital's actions speak louder than its words. Uh, we could have said, you know what? We're going to go compete head-to-head -head with interaction organically in those 10 continental European countries or cities that we didn't have uh, and try to do it ourselves as, as a, as a semi-new entrant. Uh, and we could have said, you know, the interaction brand doesn't matter. But I think the fact that we made this combination, which we view as quite strategic, uh, and we've, we've done this in Champion under the interaction brand, speaks to... Uh, the value we place to that incumbency uh, and those key competitive advantages. No, it's interesting. I mean, you've kind of answered my next question in terms of the, <laughs> the, the key challenges that you see for hyperscalers developing the European market and how they differ from North America. And I think having a, a, a partnership with an organization that's got a very established president, has got capacity, especially in my other question, which was about speed and kind of speed to market. And the fact that you've got assets and you you established it it changes the game a little bit in terms of your ability to supply to customers 
Um, so I'm going to come up with another question. Um, well, I, I can add something to bring that one to light a little bit. So uh, people, there's a big difference between the European Union of, of disparate countries hanging together, uh, I use those words lightly, <laughs> and the United States, um, uh, where you cross borders uh, and, and you're speaking the same language, uh, some very close laws and, and, and the like. And uh, I, I gave you the COVID-19 example. I can give you other examples of just doing business, uh, acquiring land to permit and build a new capacity, what we're actually doing inside of our facilities and what it means to the communities. Uh, there's, and, and each and every one of these countries and communities are different from the other. I can, I can, I can distinctly remember uh, our, our, our growth plans in Germany, uh, working with the community leaders and works councils and uh, our definition of a, a data center campus uh, translated a little bit different. Uh, they had a vision that had parks and trees and, and jungle gyms uh, for the local community to, uh, uh, to embrace along with the data center. Uh, and listen, we found a, a elegant solution to, to meet our needs and their needs. Uh, but just think of those nuances uh, uh, time and time again across Spain, uh, France, non-flat markets. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of complexity uh, and having that history and having that talent uh, in region uh, for a long time does pay tremendous dividends to our platform, in my opinion. Oh, that's good. And, and, and let, let me add a couple of uh, anecdotes to build on what Andy just said. Uh, two areas in particular really stand out, in my opinion. One is the understanding of, of the local bureaucracy. It's, uh, it's, it's sometimes mind-boggling what you have to go through to get a permit in some of the Southern European countries. I can refer to my home country of Italy. It takes much longer to get that permit than to actually build the data center. And uh, that's not the case say, in the Netherlands or, or other European countries. But then there's also the, the issue of, of the topology of the, of the territory. Uh, Europe is, uh, you know, there's a high, much higher concentration of, uh, uh, of a population. And some of the locations that are chosen to build data centers may not have the, the room to expand as fast as, uh, uh, or as easily as you would want. You may be familiar with our presence in Marseille, uh, which is kind of a crown jewel of the, of the recent expansions of, of, of interaction. There was there a great insight from the local managing director from David Ruber in terms of what Marseille could become in terms of being a gateway between Europe and, and Middle East and Africa. But Marseille is, is, is a small city surrounded by mountains. So we really had to uh, uh, look around for all possible opportunities to, to build a data center. And we ended up recycling a bunker from World War II as a place where you actually build the data center, which posed an incredible amount of, of challenges. This is not a problem you typically have in, in the Midwest, in the US, or, or locations where land is uh, comes, uh, uh, much more, much more easy. So again, a couple of examples how Europe presents some very peculiar challenges uh, that you know, having the local know-how uh, provides a, a, a makes makes a big difference. Yeah, no, I think you're you're on the money, and and you know the conversations that I have around the challenges of acquiring power and land and, and land with power in the right place, you know, it's becoming more and more more complicated in in these markets. So, um, so so I've only got a couple more questions because uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but. One of the things I'm interested in is the enterprise market. So the cloud growth versus the enterprise growth. You know, mm -hmm. are you still seeing kind of significant demand in Europe or in general for kind of enterprise customers? Um, you know, how are you seeing that kind of that enterprise versus cloud demand? If maybe 
Um, you could just touch on that, Andy from the US and and, and Giuliano from from Europe. I'll speak at a high level. I mean, we've we've um, this is an area where we put a tremendous amount of focus, and we continue to invest and evolve our platform to what we view as a very attractive, addressable market, uh, and really trying to provide the enterprise uh, a, a a global platform uh, to solution and to architect its hybrid cloud solutions. Um, during the last almost twelve months. Uh, it's certainly a place that I, I had grave concerns is how was the enterprise going to react to a global pandemic, volatility, economic uncertainty. Uh, and I would say uh, our platform digital has truly shined during that time. Uh, we've had records uh, all across the boards that relate to the corporate enterprise in terms of our new logos, 130 added to our 4,000 customers in the second quarter. Uh, almost half of our signings were in the uh, more enterprise-oriented co-location interconnection signings in the third quarter. Uh, and it's been a global affair. It's been within the United States. It's been out of Asia Pacific. And I can tell you the uh, EMEA footprint uh, is, has certainly been a major comp- uh, contributor, not just for where customers land, but where all customers are, are sourcing. Uh, so um, we're optimistic about that. We think we have uh, one of the best platforms in the industry to, to solve for the enterprise. We're investing in partnering new numerous solutions, whether it's partnering with AWS Outposts or NVIDIA or new, new use cases and applications for the enterprise customer. Um, and I would say, I'm not sure all the enterprises are at the same stage of the game. Uh, and some of that's their geography, some of that's their industry, some of that's their evolution and timing. Uh, but I'll let Juliana maybe dial more prescriptively into the lens as it relates to the, the European enterprise customer. Yes, and, and, and as I mentioned earlier, Europe is always a couple of years behind the U.S. in, 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 these, in these adoption patterns. But uh, what we are seeing, the reason we are so optimistic, as Andy mentioned, uh, is the fact that we are seeing a third wave of demand from enterprises. If you look at the first wave of demand at the beginning of the century, it was very much the classic collocation, the classic uh, uh, deployment of a, either a backup, backup site or a disaster recovery site, where basically Use the, use the third-party data center to put the applications that were not, not that mission critical for them. Then we got the cloud wave where enterprises migrated to the cloud and uh, we got the benefit of that indirectly through the hyperscalers deploying in our data centers so they could serve the cloud, uh, the, the cloud demand from the enterprises. So we got the indirect benefit. Now we are starting to see enterprises coming back to us in a more direct fashion because they're embarking on, on the digital transformation journey where they're basically uh, their traditional data center, the on-premise data center that they used to have close to HQ, uh, those data centers are being demised. And they, they're basically making decision application by application on where to deploy those workloads. And in many cases, they would put that into the cloud. But in other situations, for privacy reasons, security reasons, they would want a more secure environment to do that. And that's where we see the, the, the new demand is what I call the third wave of demand coming from enterprise, that, that's the key driver for that. And the uh, co-location environment is ideal for that. And the, you know, having access to a global platform to do that on, on a global scale across multiple countries is where we, we differentiate in terms of addressing that type of demand. That's really interesting. That leads neatly into kind of my next question around digital transformation and sustainability and kind of your thought process on zero carbon, some of the policy that's coming up in Europe around um, zero carbon digital infrastructure and, and what the kind of what the, the 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 strategy is from a 
And I know you've got people in your team that I've spoken to. I can't remember his name, but I've spoken to him before. Um, but I just wondered at a, at a high level, are you seeing that impacting from customer requests? Is sustainability becoming higher in their kind of list of key criteria, you know, what your carbon footprint is and that, that type of thing? Maybe um, either Andy or, or, or Giuliano, if you could just answer that for us. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to my comment about the evolution of the customer and their priorities shifting and uh, uh, really making sustainability a, a table stake type of item. Uh, and I, I would, uh, I would I'd say we take a lot of pride in our accomplishments of making this a priority long before others uh, really trying to follow some of our thought leaders in the industry. You look at some of our top customers, uh, most if not all of them have some pretty aggressive commitments on the sustainability front. Uh, and we made this a priority because they made it a priority and because it's the right thing to do. Uh, it's through our DNA, how we design, build, uh, operate, procure power. Um, we've tried to uh, uh, tackle it from all those angles because it's important from all those angles. I think in just the last year, uh, we've made various assortments of announcements from our uh, EchoSense announcement, I think it was back in June, uh, which was a very uh, strong legacy interaction effort in terms of the, the monitoring of our environment to our power procurements we've made in just the last few months of further greening our power sources with power purchase agreements with solar and wind farms. Um, we've also uh, let this trickle all the way into how we finance the business. So that kind of ties uh, uh, from my seat, putting our money where our mouth is. And we are the, uh, I believe the largest uh, REIT issuer of green bonds, bonds essentially, which we've issued in both the US dollar and Euro currencies in fact, mostly Euro currencies to date, uh, where we have to pledge the proceeds to sustainable investments. Um, and last but not least, uh, I think the industry uh, is starting to continue to recognize that we just on the heels of our fourth annual NAREIT, that's our uh, called uh, REIT Industry uh, Recognition Group uh, Leader in the Light Award. Uh, uh, and, and, and it's not just about the past, it's about making ambitious goals for the future. Uh, we've made some scientific-based goals we put out there to, to achieve in just the next 10 years with dramatic uh, reductions in our uh, carbon impact and footprint and overall impact from the sustainability front. So uh, that's, a, that's from the top of the house of digital that we try to make sure drives down to each and every region and, and through each and every department uh, across our globe. Uh, it's really good to hear. It, it's really good to hear. I'm not, not sure, Juliana, whether there's anything to add to that. I think um, Andy definitely covered that off. Um, so two, two more questions for you. One is around COVID, and I think we've covered that, that, that to a certain extent, but maybe just briefly wanted to talk about any operational or construction challenges that you've had and also the demand. You know, I'm assuming that from a demand perspective, you know, the numbers are a lot higher this year than you'd anticipated them. So if you could just maybe, uh, Juliana, if you could cover it from a, an operations perspective and uh, Andy, maybe from a, a demand perspective. Actually, well, probably I'll, I'll take the demand side and let Andy cover more of the operations. Because, <laughs> the operation, because on the operational front, we're really taking a global approach. So Andy is, is very yeah. good to that. So you, you can cover that. He's always giving me the hard questions. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, no, from, from a demand standpoint, I would say, first of all, um, uh, digital infrastructure in general has, uh, has really taken off uh, this year. Uh, some of our customers are saying uh, the, 
we're seeing we've seen in six months the digital transformation progress that we would expect in five years to 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 to, to take. So uh, no question about that. More specifically, we are seeing an incredible demand for uh, connectivity bandwidth. Uh, so demand for cross connects, metro connects, really uh, going up very quickly, especially in the early days of the pandemic, where customers just had to beef up their their, their pipes to make sure that they could deliver uh, the services that they needed. So huge demand from a, from a, from a connectivity standpoint, and also of course all of the global platforms uh, are, are deploying much much faster. We had some concerns at uh, the beginning of the year from from a, from an enterprise standpoint because certainly some of the verticals you can think of hospitality, retail. Uh, we felt that maybe could have been hit uh, negatively, been impacted negatively, and consequently they, they may have reduced their spend. That happened at the beginning of the year, but then you know, throughout the year, they actually invested in becoming more digital. Again, they, they, they accelerated their digital transformation journey uh, in response to the pandemic. So now we're seeing that demand really improving across the board uh, with a spike in certain areas at the beginning and now broader adoption across the board. So um, all in all, uh, again, this has really accelerated digital transformation in, 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 in many ways. Well, that's great. So Andy, on the operations and construction programs, have you kept a pace? You know, I, I think it goes all the back to what our mission is. And we get to play this, I call it small, but incredibly important role as the trusted infrastructure uh, provider uh, that, that, is, that is keeping the internet running. Um, and times like these, uh, we're obviously uh, uh, communicating, doing business over uh, Zooms and uh, various types of uh, video conferencing calls and, and emails and uh, enjoying our whatever we may be streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime in the evenings. But uh, I we also can't lose sight that our infrastructure is what's keeping the hospitals up and running, uh, the health and safety workers, uh, being able to communicate, uh, and and some of these companies that are coming out with a vaccine continue to innovate at, at, at rapid paces here. So um, we've on the from a on the ground standpoint, I wasn't kidding. That example I said, having those team members across those various jurisdictions and countries being able to explain what our service is, so that they could get the governmental paperwork to keep our facilities full with critical people. We did not. Unlike some of our peers, we did not shut down a data center. So we, we scaled back to just the critical staffing levels, but we made sure that the lights were on at digital and we were taking care of our customers' infrastructure, um, which uh, my heart goes out to so many impacted uh, by this, but I, I also have a doubly thanks for some of the team members at digital that uh, have not kind of been working from home like some of us have been for, for the last 12 or so months. They've been gunning up every day when they're lying life on the line. Uh, we've taken incremental precautions with the health and safety standpoint, incremental cleanings, uh, been very good about our, our internal communications to make sure there's any alerting to, if anyone is, is, has any near exposure to COVID-19. Uh, we've, we've not, it hasn't gone without a hiccup. We always have something, but I think we've, 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 we've navigated this storm quite well. From a construction standpoint, we've had to do something similar because uh, you can't build a data center without people, right? So uh, uh, we are bringing on capacity uh, to support some of our customers' mission-critical growth. And we've, of course, run up into various markets in Singapore, which has a very large migrant workforce that lives in dormitory style, uh, had some issues there that we had to kind of uh, 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 juggle with, but we were able to react and catch up our project timelines. Um, so by and large, especially relative to some businesses that have had to completely shut down 
and had no economic activity. Um, I think we've, we've navigated this quite well. And I think it kind of goes back to our culture of, of preparedness and, and always, we're in the data center business. We always, uh, we pack an extra parachute. Uh, we're always uh, make sure that we're ready for uh, uh, whatever could be thrown at us. And I think our team globally, whether it's a supply chain team or operations team, uh, our entire global workforce is kind of always getting ready for the un- unexpected. And I think we've quite uh, done quite well in these times. Oh, that's great. So, gentlemen, last question. I know it's been a bit of a marathon. Thank you for your um, contributing so energetically to this. But um, um, my last question is, you know, is there, and, and again, feel free not to answer, uh, but is there any intention to come under one brand as a business? Is that part of the plan? Are there any timescales for that? Is there anything that you can publicly say around the, the, the branding um, and, and that side of things? Well, uh, so we're certainly working very hard to become one company, and, and we are we are we're achieving that. Uh, I think the integration work has has almost been completed. Uh, as of the first of January, we we will truly operate as as one company in Europe, and there will be an injection of some of the uh, legacy interaction people in in the global uh, teams. So uh, the intent is to to accelerate that process as much as possible, and at some point it would be natural to uh, also absorb the brand. Uh, you know, the, the, the important thing is that our customers uh, know that we're bringing the best of both companies uh, to, to them in Europe. And that's really what we're focusing on. The, the, the brand will naturally, you know, the, the evolution of the brand will, will follow that, that, that path. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure your customers have definitely got the benefit of the, the merger and kind of the different uh, strengths of the two organizations being delivered to your joint customer base, I'm sure has been a, a positive experience by all. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. I look forward to catching up with you again, hopefully next year and seeing how things have have progressed in your world. It's a very exciting place to be. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.